Support for the Greater Than Code podcast comes from O'Reilly Fluent and Velocity Conferences, coming to San Jose, California, June 11th through 14th. From ops to apps, Velocity and Fluent will deliver the most comprehensive programs ever, including accessibility and progressive enhancement, as well as performance and operability. Best price ends March 30th. Save up to $839 using code GTC20. Learn more at O'Reilly.com slash better together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of Greater Than Code. I'm Jamie Hampton, and I'm here today with my friend and co-panelist, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, hello, and our guest today is Carrie Miller. Carrie is a software developer and team lead based in the Pacific Northwest. She's worked at enterprise companies, international ad agencies, boutique consultancies, startups, and mentors and teaches students. She's currently a builder at Travis CI and also works for Ruby Together on rubygems.org and Bundler. While all that is factually true, it doesn't actually describe an actual person. Carrie has an insatiable curiosity, having worked as a lighting designer, marionette puppeteer, sous chef, and farmhand. She attended college to study performance production, was once a semi-professional poker player, has strong opinions about keycaps, knows some sweet yo-yo tricks, and enjoys melting hot glass with a blowtorch to create beads, canes, and marini. She's currently organizing and preparing for a four-month tour of North America on her motorcycle, which you can follow at motozor.com. Asked to describe herself in two words, she thought a bit and replied, Lackwit Gadabout. So, hey, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So glad to have you. So we like to often, in fact, always start our shows by asking our guests our signature question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? And you can't cheat and say writing awesome bios. <laughs> I think that my superpower, uh, especially lately, has been saying, um, Hey team, how hard would it be to dot, 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 uh, and invent work for other people to extend problems and to, to uh, spin out the scenarios around what, what we're doing? What are we trying to do? And like, what are some cool things that we will be able to do in the future with it? Can you give like an example? I'm trying to get my head around exactly what this is, what, how this superpower works. <laughs> I don't think it's that super of a power, but, um, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, one of the things that I do that I didn't mention in the bio because I, I ran out of space is um, that I do a lot of conference organizing. Uh, I'm an organizer for Open Source and Feelings here in Seattle, uh, as well as um, MoonConf, which is a conference for functional programming that we've done uh, at least once. We'll, we're going to do a second one soon. But um, one of the things that we that we do, you know, in these meetings, you know, we're we're all frantically uh, working towards the the end goal of getting the conference uh, just to happen. And Carrie's in the corner at the end of the meeting saying, hey, maybe we should have ice cream. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we let people make their own stickers? What if people could 3D print things at the conference? What if people could 3D print their own badges? That would be cool. And before we know it, like now we've just, you know, we've spun out another 20 to 30 hours of work for the, pro for the, uh, for the project. That, that does legitimately make it cooler in the end, but it's, it's the possible, it's seeing those possibilities and trying to make those connections. And I think that comes out of my background in liberal arts and the arts and trying to see those connections between disparate things, um, to sort of see how other things could come into what we're trying to do in this moment, what the story of that, that project or a uh, piece of technology that we're, we're using saying, how could we apply this differently or, or what other things could we bring in to influence what we do with it? So what I'm hearing is that you are a professional good idea haver. Well, I don't know if they're all good ideas. There's lots <laughs> of ideas. though. A professional idea haver. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. I heard something in there about making work for other people, and I'm like, do you use this for good or evil? <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy when you're working on a project to get focused on um, the bullet points of your deliverable, right? To say, like, okay, I need to build this new service, and it's going to do X, Y, Z. And at the beginning of a project, you often have the context for how the thing, the feature or the service or whatever it is you're building, how does it fit into the larger picture of how people are working day to day or how they're interacting with your product or your company? By the time you start getting into actually getting down to the ground and doing the work, even in that phrase, down to the ground, right? It's that idea of like your your eyes are down and you're focusing on what's right in front of you. And in the motorcycling community, we talk about this idea of object fixation and, and looking. you don't look at the ground in front of you because you're going to hit that. You have to look up. You have to look out two seconds, four seconds, 12 seconds. And this is mnemonic for uh, visual, watching for dangers around down the road. And if you get focused on what's right in front of you, you lose the ability to make plans for what's going to happen into the future. And when we're working on a feature or product, we get focused on what are our deliverables? What do I have? Kanban cards or you know tickets or issues or whatever your process is. What do I have to deliver by Friday to make someone happy and, and get a paycheck? We can really lose that bigger picture of why were we building this thing in the first place? What problems is this going to solve for users, for customers, for other people in the company? I think my superpower is having the ability to always sort of look up ahead towards that horizon and see like, well, what are the, what's the next step? Okay. Yeah. We're going to do this thing. We got a two week deadline. We're going to deliver that. That's fine. What do we do next month? How does this fit in? How does this, what possibilities will this open for us in the future to make, make us ourselves and our users more awesome? It didn't occur to me for some reason that I was going to get a bunch of tips on uh, motorcycle riding during this episode, <laughs> which it should have because I know Carrie, <laughs> but I'm studying for my motorcycle license right now and I'm like ah, taking excellent. notes. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> right. That is a good life choice. Thank you. <laughs> I've been riding for. I'd say 15 years or more, but I only last year uh, actually got my motorcycle license. Uh, and I, I do not recommend that you do it in that way. <laughs> right. Well, I have never actually ridden a motorcycle. I have ridden a Vespa because that is what I have exactly mm -hmm. one time on Thanksgiving and I crashed it. Oh, no. You're okay. So, yeah. I mean, I didn't. It fell over in like slow motion. It, I was like, oh, yeah. it's too heavy for me it to didn't, stop. You didn't crash it. It just took a nap. It was on the ground, and I was also on the ground. <laughs> yeah, we, we say that, yes, the motorcycle took a nap, or <laughs> alternatively, that you, you executed perfectly the first step in examining the undercarriage of the motorcycle. In the middle of the road. <laughs> anyway, I will and, definitely come to you for tips. Oh, gladly. <laughs> I've actually been licensed since, I think, 1998 or so, but I only owned a motorcycle for about six months. Mm -hmm. I just keep paying for the endorsement in case I use it someday. This is the greater than code motorcycle gang now. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yes. Nice. I can't wait to see the patches. Yeah, we're going to have like really cool jackets. I can 3D print them. Yes. <laughs> don't apologize for riding a Vespa, by the way. Right. So uh, for those, if you don't know, right, there's, there's, there's uh, a bias against things like mopeds and scooters and things in the motorcycle world. And say, like, oh, you got to get a real bike. You know, and it's got to be so big and have like, you know, bells and whistles. But it's the same physics of how you ride basically a, a motorized gyroscope, right? A thing with two <laughs> wheels that goes down the road and like your safety, your safety concerns and the, the, like I said, the physics of, of riding it and the experience, like the feeling of riding a motorcycle is a very uh, distinctive one that people talk about frequently of being part of the environment. And you, know, you get the same thing 
on a on a scooter. And, and quite frankly, you can get the same thing uh, on a bicycle as well. You know, being part of that environment around you. So don't apologize for it at all. It's a great, easy, accessible way to get into what is kind of a tricky thing to get into for a lot of people. Well, I'm excited about it. Yeah, sometimes I feel like that bias comes from people who've spent a ridiculous amount of money on their motorcycle and want to feel justified in doing so. I feel like every community has weird gatekeeping, though, because we talk about weird gatekeeping in like the programming community all the time. And it's very yep. similar in hobbies, I think. I write about comics and there's weird gatekeeping in comics. Like it's just, there's weird gatekeeping everywhere. And I wish there wasn't. Yeah, I, I, I run into that with every new hobby that I pick up, right? Like, and it's, it's always different. There's always a different, uh, a gatekeeper, but they're there. We tie a lot of our identity up into the things that we do. Uh, I am a developer. I, I ride motorcycles. I am a something. And that informs a lot of people on, on who they are. And uh, especially if you have multiple hobbies or even conflicting hobbies, as I do, <laughs> it can be really interesting to explore different identities or, or cross cross interest identities that way. You have a lot of hobbies. And I'm curious, what is like the most bizarre gatekeeping that you've experienced? I think within each each little community, though, it always seems perfectly normal to that community. It's probably hard to imagine the glass community, for example, the, the bead community. It's like, oh, you make beads. Oh, well, like that's like those are the Vespas of the, <laughs> the glass working community. <laughs> you don't need a furnace. You just have a blowtorch kind of a thing. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, like you don't have like a whole team of people, you know, and blowpipes and everything. Or, oh, oh, you work you work in bar silicate glass. Well, clearly you only make drug paraphernalia with your, <laughs> your special glass blowing techniques. But that's, that's the story, right? And that's, that's just like this human, the human way that we, we, our brains work around metaphors and illusions and, and categories. And we apply labels and like say, Oh, this person works, um, in this sort of style. So that means certain things about them. And maybe that's true, but more often than not, it's, it's not, quite frankly. In the yo-yo community, <laughs> uh, the term is throwers. We are throwers. That's what we call ourselves. Okay. There's, there's different kinds of yo-yos and these yo-yos, um, these different designs and styles, like how the axle works or how the design of the body is, uh, the kind of string that you use, all of these sorts of things, uh, are tools to enable you to do different kinds of tricks. Uh, but when you're doing a yo-yo routine, you can't, you can't quickly change to a different kind of yo-yo. And so uh, yo-yoers, throwers, uh, will so almost specialize into one sort of style of trick because you're using this one kind of yo-yo that enables that kind of trick. And so if you, you can't mix and match as easily, you can't cross over. And so you get these little tiny, like little subgroups of people who go, this is a person who goes this kind of trick or that kind of trick or, you know, on string, off string. It, it, it's all, you know, super technical and, and highly specialized language. But, uh, you know, it's the same way where, you know, we have people who are, are you, oh, you're a Ruby developer. Versus being a Rails developer, or are you are you an actual Ruby developer? Do you write Django, or do you use Flask? It, you know all of these sorts of distinctions that you know, inform inform us as shorthand about the skill set and the tool set and even the work process uh, around somebody's uh, what they do and how they do it. And I also feel like people's response when you tell them what you do is almost shorthand that informs you like if that person is a jerk or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have told, I think I've told this story before, 
on the show, but I had, I was at a party one time and I was like, Oh, I'm in tech. It was like not a tech party. It was a burning man party. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I work in tech. And he's like, Oh, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a, like, I'm a developer. I'm like a full stack developer. And he was like, Oh, what, like, what do you write in? I'm in tech too. And I'm like, Oh, I write in rails. And he goes, Oh, so not a real, de- not a real programmer. And I was like, what? Oh. And he was like, well, Ruby is a scripting language. And I'm like, you don't even know what, like I could, I was so shocked that someone would come up to my face and like say something to my face that I would see on Twitter that I didn't even know what to do. Right. It's like, that's not even a legitimate categorization of the language anymore. I, I mean, I was like, where's your anime profile picture? I can't see it. In my <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's interesting to be in the Ruby community and the and the social community as well um, that, that I surround myself with, and that like that's that's so abnormal. Like we we're not part necessarily of contempt culture in that that hardcore way. There, there's still contempt, right? We're still like working on deprogramming ourselves and like unwinding uh, years of that. But it's it's much more welcoming in, in the circles that I'm in. So to like mm-hmm. when I go to other communities that still have um, a stronger tradition, I would say right. of that. <laughs> It's interesting. I've been going to a lot of uh, attending and speaking at a lot of conferences that are polyglot or not the traditional Ruby community that I'm normally a part of and finding you know, vestiges of that. And it, it's interesting to uh, compare and contrast what I like and what I, I dislike about my community. I learn a lot by, by going out away from these comfort zones. It's kind of like travel, but technology-wise. Emotional travel. Cultural exchange. That's why I'm not worried about the Is Ruby Dead theme that's been going through most of the Ruby community the last couple of years. Because whether or not Ruby is dead is not really an interesting question per se. But the idea of like, well, if the argument is that like, well, we have all these Ruby developers that are like leaving Ruby. It's like, well, that's okay. Like they'll go and they'll, they'll take the awesomeness of this community <laughs> and bring it to other, other languages and like set up little like <laughs> right. their own, like seeding the good parts, hopefully out to uh, other languages and, and influencing not just the communities, but also the languages themselves. I see a lot of languages will uh, trumpet themselves or, or or one of the bullet points is it's as easy as Ruby or Python. It's like, well, wow, like what a, what an impact that these two languages, these languages have had um, to like bring a certain, based on that perspective of developer happiness and making things easy and being nice to people uh, and bringing that outwards uh, into the technology itself. Yeah. I was actually at uh, the Portland Ruby meetup last night and um, Lee Bailey gave uh, a really excellent talk about Rust from a Rubyist's perspective. And it was the funniest presentation I've ever seen. Uh, they did, they said they spent like two weeks of like 12 hour days just drawing cartoons for this thing. It was very much in the style of why the lucky stiff. It oh, was I'm so sorry. Fantastic. But yeah, it was, uh, uh, they said they gave it at, uh, RustConf 2016. So there may be video out there on the, on the internet as well. But, uh, yeah, totally worthwhile. And yeah, totally what you were talking about of like taking, you know, Ruby awesomeness and making it part of that, that diaspora. I totally agree. I think that the reason that communities can get insular sometimes is because it's easy to be like, well, everyone in this community, you know, understands what I do and like respects that. And it can be, intimidating to like step out of that community into a place where someone could tell you, well, you're not a real developer and like, hopefully that won't happen to you, but like it could. And so I think that people insulate themselves because of that. And I can't really blame people necessarily, but I really like this idea of like taking it out to different parts of the community at large and like spreading, like this is how we respect each other. And now you've seen what I do and you 
you know me and you can respect me for what I do. And now you can respect other people that do the same thing as me for what they do. If that makes sense. Yeah. There's something wonderful about travel and that you learn that everybody's the same in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, so right now it's, it, in North America, it's winter time and the motorcycle community is pretty much shut down, right? Cause you don't want to ride in the snow. Nobody wants to do that. Even people that do don't want to do it. So a lot of people are traveling down to Mexico and as a mostly white affluent North American, uh, American community, um, there's a lot of biases about that. Like, you know, especially, um, in a lot of the, the women riders groups that I'm part of, like, you know, will, will it be safe to ride in Mexico? Cause all we hear in the news all the time, right? Is the story of violence and gangs and, and whatnot, but you get there and it's just people living their lives and like getting their kids to school and, you know, having lunch and taking a coffee break and putting gas in their car. All of those sorts of concerns, like getting through like a modern world are there. And even, even in more rural places, you know, it's still the same of like, you know, we're taking care of the farm or, you know, we're running the store or the shop or whatever it is, right? It's, it's, it's the same human concerns of living in societies that we structured. It's not that different. There's differences and those differences are really interesting. Fascinating. Those are, those are usually culture, but the mechanics of how you move through your day is, is very much the same. And there's something, I don't know, I think there's something really human about that that's, that's really wonderful. And I get the same thing when I go to a PHP conference or a Go conference where, wow, like the problems that people are solving are almost always aligned. And they're almost always the same kinds of problems, right? I need this server to talk to this server. I have to take this string of characters and transform it into this other string. Or I need to like, you know, aggregate some numbers from a database. We're doing, we're solving those problems in different ways, but often those differences are less than similarities. So it sounds like maybe the stories that people are telling themselves about what it's going to be like to visit another country or, you know, go to a conference in a, from a different programming culture, maybe at odds with what the actual reality would be if they tried it. Yeah, I think so. I think that it's the stories that we tell ourselves, they're useful. Most stories are, are useful, right? It's useful shorthand for how, how we work. And a lot of people talk about this when you start looking at like how we bias ourselves. And I would recommend a great talk by Sam Livingston Gray on, on the human biases. <laughs> it's a wonderful talk. Yeah, it really is. Um, I, I revisit it often, but all of those, all of those come around because of like the central flaw in the human wetware of, you know, that we, we categorize and we label things as, abstract concepts so that we can we can handle them right so we can easily categorize this is dangerous that is not dangerous this is i can eat this i can't eat that i will defend this person i will not defend that person there's a lot of you know base psychology in that and that that even extends up to the stories that we tell ourselves about what different technology is used for what it's good at <clears throat> what people in those communities are like uh and who we are as well and that, that can be a benefit, uh, but it's also a hindrance because it gives us a context for understanding ourselves. And it's, it's when we can, we can break out and challenge those, those constraints of what the story tells us. We can tell a new story and then we can begin to tell stories about those stories. Hey, we have a surprise bonus panelist today. Uh, Christina Murillo has just joined us as well. Welcome. Hi. Happy to be here. Glad you could hop on. Me too. So what are we talking about? <laughs> I think right now we're kind of edging into talking about uh, storytelling and contextual framing. Oh, I need okay. to get better at storytelling. Yes. I want to learn all the things about storytelling. I think that storytelling or the ability to tell a good story should be something that uh, we hire for. I agree with you, even though I don't have that skill and I wouldn't get hired for it. <laughs> 
I know. Well, that's that's what I, I was going to say is that um, in um, SICP, Structures of... Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. Yes, thank you. Uh, the author of that, the one quote that I got out of that entire book, right, was this idea that like uh, software is written primarily to be consumed by humans, and it's only incidentally run by computers. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So good, good code tells a story. It tells a story. And that's what I love about the flexibility and eloquence of Ruby and that it allows us to tell stories. When I go to like a, uh, some other languages that are a little, they're a little more precise. They're a little more, uh, uh, constrained computery, if you will. Uh, things, it's, uh, perhaps <laughs> they don't express things quite as well. Uh, one metric I used, people always, whenever I started a new company or a new project, uh, people always apologize for their code, right? They're like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's such a mess, right? And I'm like, okay, well, that tells me part of the story about what went into building this, you know, and like what your experience has been around this, this product. But one of the metrics I use to see it is code actually good or bad is can I read it out loud? If I can actually read code out loud, and in Ruby, this is actually fairly easy, right? If I can read it out loud and it's kind of close to English and it's kind of telling me a story, I know that anyone who could read English uh, and, and comprehend it well will be able to to abstractly understand what mechanical things a piece of code is doing. And this is why uh, compositional code is very interesting, right? Where we, we extract um, little tiny sub sub-transformations and, and sub-procedures out into methods with good names. Why naming things is important to allow us to to tell that story and, and let us engage the language centers of our brain to really internalize what something is doing rather than trying to hold be a computer and hold multiple variables and transformations in our head. We can understand it with using language and leveraging that labeling structures that already exist in our human brains. That's the theory anyway. What was the name of the book? It's the structure and interpretation of computer programs. The first edition was written in Lisp, and it was used to teach an intro to computer science class at MIT for many, many years. My understanding is that MIT has now switched that class over to use Python. Oh, okay. Didn't surprise me. Thank you. Also, that's interesting that they would switch over to Python. I had a copy of SICP for many years. It was given to me by somebody who had had it for many years and never read it uh, and then passed it on to me. And then I kept it for many years and never read it and passed it on to somebody else. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I feel smarter for having owned it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those books. It's like this design pattern book. I'm like, I'm never going to read it, but like it's there. When I was taking Calc three, I took Calc three when I was in 11th grade and that was a lot. And um, I was so frustrated. I remember sleeping with my calc book under my pillow. And I'm like, maybe I'll dream about calc and learn something. <laughs> That's, I mean, I did pass the class. I don't remember anything about calc. I'm very bad at math these days. But it's, I feel like it's one of those stories that you see in like a TV, like a sitcom. And like, I really did that in my real life. <laughs> it's oh. interesting that you mentioned calculus though. Um, and, and learning calculus because I got super lucky. Uh, I went back to get a computer science degree, which for some reason required me to learn calculus. I don't know why it was to go with the physics that I also don't use. Uh, <laughs> But as I was taking the first uh, calculus course uh, that was required, uh, I coincidentally was also reading um, Neil Stevenson's uh, The System of the World. And as it happens, Newton and Leibniz were both characters in this book, and they were talking about you know, what they were using calculus for. And so, you know, studying a little bit of physics and reading this book and 
learning calculus all at the same time. The book helped give me a narrative and a story to fit calculus into. So I, I, even though I don't understand any, I don't retain any of the mechanics of like how you integrate or, um, uh, otherwise work with calculus stuff. I, like I've forgotten the terminology even. Uh, but even though I don't use the mechanics, I understand what calculus was for and why it was invented. And I, it really changed the way that I look at the world and still does. That's really cool. I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only person who like didn't retain anything out of calculus. Yeah, skills are used earlier, is it? Uh, yeah, I didn't return. I didn't retain anything either. I still don't understand what it's really used for, but okay. The story that we tell about math is an influential one. I barely scraped, scraped through ninth grade algebra. Um, after really, uh, actually, you know, being being a, math, a mathematician, I was I was in like after school like STEM programs and math and everything. Pre-algebra was fine. Algebra one, I kind of struggled with. And then 10th grade, I got into uh, geometry and I bombed out of that class. I, by the third quarter of uh, sophomore year, I, there's no way, even if I aced everything else, like, there's no way I was getting out of that class with a passing grade. I said, Oh, I guess I'm one of those people that just doesn't get math. Um, I'm going to go follow these, these, this art path. And so I went into performance production. I ended up at college for performance production, doing design work, lighting design, things like that. Um, it was years later, I, I, I dropped out of college to, to get into tech, which was a great decision for me. I don't know if I recommend it for everybody, but it's a good decision for me. I went back, though, to do a couple semesters at, um, uh, in a performance production program here in Seattle uh, to kind of like finish out my, my degree work and quickly realized uh, during uh, one particular shop class when we were building sets that what somebody happened to mention in a happenstance way, oh, we'll just use a little trig to figure out this, this angle of a support beam or something. And I was like, well, Tell me more about that. Come to find out, I knew trigonometry and I've been using it for years, building sets and designing things and like understanding like load bearings and, and how like the load shifts over time as you shift these different support triangle trusses and things. And so suddenly the story had shifted, right? It had shifted from what I was being taught by one particular teacher in one particular year of my life, whether or not I was good then to this is something that I can use and it has value and I already know it and it's not scary at all. It's not intimidating and it, it shouldn't be. It was, it was just human knowledge and I'm a human and I have a human brain. So the, then the story about that shifted, story around trigonometry shifted from here's a thing that really smart people take when they're preparing to go to Harvard or MIT to here's something that some woman in, you know, a scene construction shop in an old, warehouse is using to build, you know, I don't know, Godspell or something, right? When that story shifted, it really made the difference for me. And the same, a similar thing happened to me in tech as well. Like my tech story in a lot of ways involves shifting that story from, I just hack on a little Perl and PHP to I write code. I'm an engineer. One of the things that I'm proudest of um, in my career is being uh, helping to start the Ada Developers Academy here in Seattle. Uh, I was the teacher, one of the two teachers to the first cohort. It's a great program if you don't know about it. Uh, you can look it up later. Yes, Ada is amazing. Uh, I'm such a fan. I'm such a fan of it. And I, I wish I could be more involved. But I was a teacher of that first thing. And one of the, the tr there was a transformational moment in the six-month classroom around somewhere between six to ten weeks where women in the program are changing their story from I'm learning code to I'm writing code to I am an engineer. And it was changing that self-definition from this is something I am learning to this is something I am, or this is something that I know and, and accepting and integrating into who they were. And that was that transformational moment for them where it empowered them 
to continue to move forward and expanded them. And it gave them these new superpowers once they, they changed that story about their relationship to the thing that they were interested in. So do you feel that like shifting, I think I know the answer to this, with education and learning, shifting the story or like the context will allow people to become more receptive to learning? Like you have to learn this because this is going to get you into Harvard versus this is what this, you know, little old woman in a shoe uses to support her family, right? Like, I think I know the answer to that, but I would love to hear your kind of perspective. I think I agree. That's the joy and wonder that I found when I first approached Ruby was that I discovered Why the Lucky Stiff's uh, Wise Poignant Guide to Ruby. And up until that point, like, yes, uh, we were talking about SICP earlier, these 900 page hard bound books with five authors and they're, you know, printed by, you know, academic presses. And that, that was, that was a computer textbook. And the other ones that you had were, you know, learn C in five hours or, you know, the internet in 24 hours, you know, like the dummies books. It was a different kind of uh, approach. Y's book completely changed the perspective from here's this thing that you need to study in this academic rigorous way to here's this thing that is fun and weird and, and a little wacky and whimsical. And it was very practical. And it talked about code in a way that was experiential and contained metaphors and allusions. One of the ones that I, I really remember is uh, in Ruby, we put an at symbol at the beginning of the name of a variable. Um, and that makes it an, um, an instance variable. And if I'm remembering correctly, why describe that as it's like a little whirlpool. The value that's in that variable falls down the whirlpool and is spread out all over the <laughs> object. And I was like, that's really weird. I love that. That's great. I think the other one was you have an array, you do dot each, do, and then you have a pair of pipes and the, the temporary variable name for doing a loop over that array. And as he described it, it's like all of the values in the array are on a playground slide. And one by one, they walk to the top of the slide and they slide down through the loop. You can't see it because I'm on video and I'm doing hand gestures, but, but just thinking about, about the, this piece of code as a bunch of kids at a playground going down the slide, I'm like, Oh, yeah, okay. I understand that. That's easy. That's great. Because I had, this, I had this story to attach it to and then and this thing. And it was, is, is it a perfect metaphor? No. Is it maybe 60% accurate? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the actual number is, but for me, like that just, that just opened it up and it made it, it instantly relatable. When I see that structure, that's all I think about even today. Uh, it's a bunch of numbers that are just taking turns on a playground slide. I never actually read uh, that book much as a programming guide. I mostly approached it as a, as a work of art. Um, but that's really fantastic. Yeah. And that was also the book that, um, that made me, I don't say it made me committed to Ruby, but it was the one that said like the Ruby community is full of weirdos and that there's a space for whimsy here. And that's, that's what I responded to. And I, I still try to do that with a lot of the weird, I do weird gems and weird projects all the time because I'm, I, I try to keep that, that sort of spirit of exploration and keeping it fun and interesting. Cause I don't, I don't know what weird thing that I've done is going to inspire somebody else, but I, I hope that, that somebody responds to something I do. I just assume that there's somebody out there who's, who's heard something I've said or, or worked on and moved forward and done something even weirder, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely, I, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of the students that I taught at Ada and they're, they're all amazing. And they, they've taught me things now. Like, you know, they've been out like a few years in, in, in the industry, several years now at this point and coming back and working with them. Like they're teaching me about code now. I love that. I love that a, that I don't know everything, which is amazing and awesome because it's always something new that I get to learn. 
Uh, and not just because technology is moving fast, but just because it's a broad topic. And that, like, you know, I gave a bunch of other people tools to go learn things, to come back. And that, that, that leveled me up. I don't remember what the stat is, but I remember reading something about that. Like, if you want to learn something better, teach it. So, like, that's how you retain versus just getting it, like, kind of poured into you. Like, you just, you show it to someone else. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me because, like, I find that I know enough about something to do it, but I don't know enough about how it works to teach it. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, I can do this. I can show someone how to do this. And then when I go to do it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to learn more about this in order to do this, which is cool. Yeah. That was actually my college experience. I went to uh, I attended Goddard College, which is a, uh, a John Dewey school. And so it's a democratic education. I should get that right because I'm an alumni. <laughs> but it's, it's this idea of like one approach to education is, um, you know, you sit in a, at a desk and there's a teacher at the front of the room and they, they lecture or they teach, you know, they, they pour information out on you and you absorb 75% of that. And, you know, every day you get 75% of what the teacher says. My school and schools like it are around this idea of democratic Socratic inquiry. And so it's small groups organizing around topics to learn and discuss and share and inform each other. So for example, I took a class in medieval history. Uh, that is, that is a, a class that is ripe for lectures, right? Like, and this is what the, the second synod did. And this is what, you know, this particular war meant. What we, the way that we did it was we did uh, field trips to look at medieval art exhibits uh, and discuss the art and, and teach each other. We would assign, each person would get an artist and they, they went and they learned about that artist and like wrote a paper about it. But then like we would come and like have discussions, like active discussions around the art or, uh, you know, like one person would learn about, would, would focus on reading books about one side of a conflict and somebody else would, would read books around the other side of that conflict. And then we would debate and discuss and educate each other about the, the opposite of what we knew. So like learning things through the exploration, through the doing of things, through being actively involved, that's an amazing way to learn. And it's not suited for everybody, but it's a valuable way of approaching it. I feel like this comes back to storytelling too, though, because Christina, like what you were saying about how you really have to teach something in order to learn it. I feel like there's this process that happens when you realize you're going to have to help somebody else learn a thing. You start thinking about what order do they need to learn these things in and how you're going to tell that story. And doing that forces you to organize the information in a new way in your own brain so that you're capable of telling that story. Mm-hmm. Yep. I usually incorporate a lot of analogies. <laughs> so my husband, he's not in tech. And so when I'm trying to explain things to him, he, he's like a basketball, you know, like huge fan and he plays. So like, I have to break it down to him in basketball terms. I'm just like, you know, when you're at the free throw line, it's really weird, but it just works so that I can like break down these concepts. (laughs) It's what works, you know, but I find that analogies help me a lot, which is interesting because I noticed that, you know, a lot of these like code schools, they don't take that approach. And I feel I've always felt that it's like a missed opportunity. A friend of mine was an instructor and I would say like, why do you teach like, day one hello world or like that i'm like why don't you show the person like you know how you guys go on amazon.com and when you add something to cart like this is what's happening right let me show you how that works in the back end as opposed to this weird interface and then you just start typing all these weird characters right that's how a newbie would see it um mm-hmm. i feel like they should relate it back to something that a person uses every day so that it can make sense but that's not the case so 
I had a very similar experience when I was studying computer science where like my first like intro class, we le- we were learning Java and we learned getters and setters. And it was kind of just like, here is what a getter and a setter looks like. You're like public void. That's just what you write. And I didn't understand why I'm like, just memorize that these are what you write. And I'm like, okay, I memorized it. Now I can write getters and setters. And then in my next class, the next semester, we talked about like method calls in general and we're like, okay, this is what the first word means. And here are the options. And this is what the second word means. And like void is that you're not returning anything. And, and it was suddenly like, I understood this. And now the thing I already memorized, I also understood, <laughs> which was actually a pretty cool feeling to like go back and be like, it was this moment of like, it was like Eureka and everything I had learned for the past semester suddenly like poured into my mind as like things that made sense. But I kind of wish that I hadn't had to wait so long to get to that moment. <laughs> yeah. I worry about like what happened to the people who dropped out before they hit that Eureka moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're the people that failed out of 10th grade geometry and decided that they couldn't do it or that it wasn't for them. That I had a good, sets their story. I had a great friend who dropped out of computer science, not because of that specifically, but um, he didn't like debugging. And when he realized that, like, oh, this is, like, a thing I'm going to have to do at all times, and I'm never going to get to stop. And he was just like, I don't I don't <laughs> like this. I don't want to do this. And I was like, I can respect that. You know, it's not for everybody. <laughs> so he dropped out, and then he learned, like, five languages, like, speaking languages. And he was like, learning languages is just like computer science, except I don't have to debug. And now he's, like, a translator, and he speaks, like, nine languages, which is so cool. Wow. <laughs> so Basically, he's looking for errors in communication between two people. Like, that seems to be debugging all the time. <laughs> he was like, he's like, why this didn't work? And it was because there was a semicolon. And I'm like, sorry, dude, that's just what happens. <laughs> but he doesn't have to worry uh, about that now. My story, similar to that, is uh, network communication. People explained to me multiple times with like, there's all these different levels and layers and there are HTTP packets and there's frames and, and blah, right? It's like, it's incomprehensible. The way that I taught it at Ada was we made a paper airplane and we just threw that paper airplane back and forth. Like you're the server, you're the database, you know, like just like, so people could have a physical uh, connection and sort of see it. So like, we're not going to talk about technical things. We're just going to talk about like the concept of something flowing through the system. You know, and so like posting was like, okay, we're going to write down some stuff and put an envelope. And now you get to pass the envelope around and only certain people can open the envelope and look at it. You know, so just trying to find like different ways of explaining things because you, you need that, that empathy to understand like what, what's the context that somebody brings to this story that I tell? What do they understand and, and what is interesting or important to them? And a lot, a lot of tech introduces itself by things like, uh, here's one. NSQ is a real-time distributed messaging platform designed to operate at scale, handling billions of messages per day. It promotes distributed, decentralized topologies without a single point of failure, enabling fault tolerance and high availability coupled with reliable message delivery guarantees. Now, I'm pretty well steeped in, you know, in these kinds of architectures. Um, so I kind of understand what it does, but I still have to stop and think about it. Yeah, that doesn't tell you why. Yeah, it doesn't tell me why. It doesn't tell me, like, what problems are you solving? What Especially when you're working in something that's like a fundamentally different kind of architecture, um, you, under, you have to change your your ideas of relationships, how services work. It's awkward and weird, and so often you find tech explains itself by the bullet points of its feature set rather than mm. its use cases and what your relationship to it should be. That's what I loved about. I think the one of the things that that I think contributes to why Rails was so popular, in addition to what you said there, Sam and Chat, was this idea that. Was, was the, the classic um, build a blog in 10 minutes. Video. Yes. 
and every variation of that, right? It's like, what do you want to do? I want to build a blog. Okay, well, how do you do that with Rails? Well, be, 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 and it's done. Versus like, if you like just went through the bullet points of what Rails does and what it is, like you've lost people. You just lost them because there's no empathy for like, what problems do you have that I can solve for you? Yeah, I've heard so many stories about people who they came to Rails because they didn't consider themselves a techie. They they wanted to, you know, build some business or scratch some itch and they happened to run across Rails and it was accessible enough for them to hack out, you know, whatever they actually needed to do and it it let let them get far enough to do that. Mm-hmm. If you look at the uh, WordPress, it runs some ungodly amount of the internet runs on WordPress and mm-hmm. You know, part of contempt culture, right, is we make fun of WordPress or we make fun of PHP, um, which we shouldn't do. But, you know, that persists. But my goodness, like, look at all these people that wanted to get a website for their their dog walking business or their wedding photography or they wanted to, like, share vacation blogs or whatever it is. Right. It's like the tech didn't get in their way. The tech solved a problem for them. And it does so in a way that is approachable and relatable and approaches people as individuals with problems. And I'm going to solve your problems. And here are the problems that you have that I can solve for you. Um, rather than being like the feature set. Motorcycles are like this. Motorcycles will advertise themselves based on like, you know, the torque and the foot pounds and how many horsepower and all that. And I'm just like, uh, it's, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Right. And the reason we get on motorcycles in the first place is because we want to experience that freedom of moving through the world without you know, tons of metal around us. Exactly. In, in the midst of all of that sort of like bragging about like the numbers, right, around motorcycles, like, you know, what, the, the number on a motorcycle usually refers to the size of the engine. There's a little bit of motorcycle trivia for you if you don't know. So instead of bragging about how big the engine is, uh, years ago, back in the 70s, I believe, Honda had an amazingly influential motorcycle advertising campaign where the tagline was, you meet the nicest people on a Honda. And it had all these pictures of like, really nicely smartly dressed people like riding to like the farmer's market or brunch or the flower, you know, picking up flowers or, you know, just living their lives and doing this thing. And it was like, this solves your problem. It wasn't bragging about like how fast it goes. It wasn't bragging about how awesome you're going to look riding it. It was like, you have a problem, which is getting around your city easily in a carefree way. We're going to solve that. I have also experienced this. I got a Vespa because I think Vespas are cool. And then people are like, what number is your Vespa? What what year is it? And I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, how can you not know? I'm like, because I just got it. I wrote it once. I don't know. <laughs> I could look it up on my papers. But like, it's weird to me that people think that that's the most important thing about it in general. Some people are into features. They feel that that attracts more buyers, I guess. But I'm like, it's blue. I love it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think especially once you, once you're steeped in that, in, in a community, right? You, it's very easy to become obsessed by the features, you know, and because that's your, that's your frame of reference, right? So like I'm working a lot in Sinatra right now and I, I've used Sinatra as a teaching tool, but I, I haven't actually like really used it in production as much as I am right now. And I keep doing that thing, right? Where I'm like, I'm trying to write Sinatra as if it's a Groovy app. It's the same way as if like, you know, people that come to, from one language to another, you write that new language in the style of your old one. And you complain because the new thing doesn't do what the old thing did. Why doesn't Sinatra make it easier for me to use active record models? I don't understand. This is horrible. Blah, blah, blah. Because I've lost the wonder of what it's letting me do. And I've lost sight of like the problems that it's letting me solve and the way that it's solving those problems. That's right. So like I might be a motorcycle nerd and I'm like, I know all about the numbers. Those numbers 
actually maybe mean something to me. So I'm interested, Jamie, in like what your your Vespa is, because that's interesting to me. But like the thing that we do share, though, is that very common experience where, where our experiences overlap, that Venn diagram is that excitement and initial thrill of, of riding and that pleasure that we get. If I want to connect with you about Vespas, that's where I need to aim my communication, right? It's in that place, that place of excitement and and wonder and magic and mystery. I'm assuming that you like it. I'm assuming that it's all magical and rainbows for you. <laughs> I mean, it will be. It'll be awesome. It'll be great. <laughs> you know, let's say we were in an environment where they're very like feature set oriented, right? Instead of like problem solution use case oriented. How do we connect the dots? Like, how do we kind of flip it on its head, so to speak, and say, like, let's look at it from like a use case problem and let's create a story around that versus, you know, you telling me all the features I'm going to get for 1999. You know what I mean? I did a lot of work in advertising or I worked for advertising agencies in the 90s uh, coming up. And one of the things that they often do will um, is to make personas. And very often what we would do, and I actually did this at a number of startups um, that I've worked at in the last 15 years, is you think of your three or four personas and then you put, you make posters of them. You put them on the wall of like, this is what this person likes and this is what they do. And this is, you know, the part of the country they live in, like maps and cutouts from magazines or articles or, you know, whatever, right? Like we, we make collages basically of these people and they're hung in prominent places. So we're always like surrounding ourselves with like the humanity of our customers. Not necessarily, I mean, you can look at it from a technical perspective, right? And sort of say like, oh, well, we have to, you know, keep these people in mind and like serve their needs. But also there's an emotional component too of how am I communicating with the people around me that serves these people. As a lead developer, one of your jobs, uh, I talked earlier about like you, 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 in motorcycling, you're supposed to look out up to 12 seconds ahead, you know, to see what's coming at you. As a lead developer, you often are, are that's part of your, your job is to not just focus on like what's causing this bug and how do we fix it, but how do we do remediation with the users? That's, a, that's the next, the next circle out. And then how do we stop this bug from ever happening again? What things contributed to that in our process? How could we do educate? You know, like, so you have this ever expanding view of, of what the territory looks like. You're always trying to like bring that up. Um, so I have this, I have post-it notes on my monitor to remind me to ask questions about that bigger story. Like what's the human impact? What's the 30,000 foot view? What will this let us do in six months? What will this stop us from doing in six months? So I make sure that I ask those questions and kind of keep those in mind. In the financial industry, so I worked in the financial industry before in doing like security. So they call that tactical and strategic. I used to find that really funny. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And, you know, they would tell me, what can we do today versus what can we do in six months? You know, give mm-hmm. us a 30,000 foot view. So I guess it does come in handy. Yeah. I like the way you, ex- you kind of explained it, though. It makes much more sense. You're a good storyteller. Oh, thank you. Total tangent here, but that reminds me of the time I learned a really interesting phrase. You talked about tactical and strategic, and those are those are bits of jargon that I understand and sort of have internalized. But the important part is that they are technical jargon. Uh, they have specific meaning within a specific context. And I was at work one day, and I was talking to somebody, and I said, wait, what was that phrase that you just said? And then they repeated it, and they said, oh, it's a term of art. And I was like, okay, what the hell is a term of art? <laughs> 
And so I went and I looked it up and I realized that term of art was a legal term to describe a bit of a phrase or word that had specific meaning and specific context. So term of art is legal jargon for jargon. <laughs> term of art is legal jargon. And that just blew my mind. Whoa. Excellent. Legal jargon for jargon. <laughs> I love it. Can I tell you a story? Please. Please. Okay. This kind of reinforces, I guess, or builds on what I was saying earlier around the stories. My grandmother, my grandmother Miller, she was born in 1917, 1918. In the 40s and 50s, she was the postmistress of my small hometown during World War II. Uh, she was the postmistress, and she had been postmistress for like 30 years. Sometime in the 50s, we're a little hand-wavy about this in my family. One Friday, the train that was delivering the new stamps and the, the payroll, the actual cash that she was going to pay the, the postal carriers with, uh, was late. It was delayed. Uh, came in right as she was closing up shop on Friday. And so she didn't have time. They didn't have a safe that, right? So she didn't have time to like, you know, deal with it. So she put it in the, in the coal fired oven in the, uh, that was in the break room at the post office. Well, it was a three day weekend and it was very cold that weekend because it was Vermont. So she got in on Tuesday. And made herself a pot of tea. She put the oh, kettle on. No. Oh no. Does anyone smell anything burning? Yes, my, my grandmother set on fire the equivalent of several tens of thousands of dollars in cash and stamps and was investigated for about two years by postal inspectors. And that's a story that gets told all the time in my family. It's probably not a hundred percent true, right? There's, there's details that have gotten <laughs> fudged and fuzzed and everything, but it tells a truth. Right. And that truth is the time that grandma set money on fire. Right. Or like, forgot that. And that's an entertaining story. And that tells you a little bit about like my hometown and like who I am and what my family has done historically. You know, like all of those sorts of things, the context of who I am and where I'm coming from and some funny information. If I just told you, Hey, this one time my grandmother accidentally set on fire $50,000, like end of story. Right. That's the bullet point of the facts that happened. And. <laughs> I think that so often we let facts and data and information be the story, right? When it's just like, here's a bunch of data points and we, we leave it up to the users to, to contextualize that data. Really what we need to do is we need to be providing context for data and for that information so that we communicate not just what we want, but make sure that it gets across the, the story behind that information, what that, what it assembles into the picture that it paints is understandable by the person who we're attempting to communicate with. At the very beginning, we talked a little tiny bit about code being read by humans primarily and only incidentally run by computers. And I think that storytelling is not just in code. It is in documentation. It is how we write bugs. It is how we write emails to each other. It's how we, we speak to each other in Slack. It's the emojis that we choose. It is the pronouns, the names that we use for people, the language that we, we, we choose to, to interact with each other. All of those things combine together to reinforce and tell the story of what's happening and really let us communicate not just data points, but actually the truth of what we're trying to get at. The capital T truth, you know, the thing that's underlying it all. I think there's two parts of a story, and one is what it's telling you. And the other is like how it makes you feel like almost the aesthetic that surrounds the story. Aesthetic is very important to me. And I think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I like your story about your grandmother in that, because like what it's telling you is that 
this is what happens, you know. But I feel like there's a lot of aesthetic surrounding that story that makes me feel a certain way. And I think that's what it's trying to get across. Like, I feel like it, it, it it's kind of well-rounded in this sense of, like, now. Like, especially when you said it tells you something about, like, this town and where you, you grew up. I think that's totally true. And I think that's what this, like, small-town aesthetic that I'm getting from it, I really liked that. That's a very important part. Yeah. So I'm reading, I'm also, I'm reading this book. Well, it's an audio book, but it's, um, talk like Ted, because that's something that I've actually been focused on, like how to become a better storyteller so that I can just become a better communicator all around, right? By telling stories, right? And so like I'm going through this book and he's talking about that point, right? That about the emotion element and about that's how you connect or get people to connect with you. And when you, get them to feel something like when Carrie was talking about his grandmother or I I vividly imagined this I imagine like this woman and the the place and the money and like the fire and the smoke and the people when like it, I don't know it was it just it just made me feel like oh my god what happened and just like watching a movie right um so I guess it it turned on my imagination and I and that's a big part of what motivates people the feeling. So I can see with the feature stuff, it's like, ah, eh, feature, ah, uh, story is like, oh, I can meet people if I drive a Honda, you know? <laughs> so one of the things that my family frequently does, uh, at family gatherings is we just, we sit around, we tell stories to each other. And there's something about, we just tell, we tell the same stories over and over again. And one time I went home with a long-term partner and they, afterwards they were like, I can't believe like you, Every single story that, that you and your family told each other tonight is the same, the same story that I've heard like five times already. I don't understand. It. I'm really frustrated. And I'm like, you have to understand that when we tell that story, these stories to each other, we're saying, I love you. And we're saying, I care about you. And look at all these other examples in our family's history that we have this history that carries forward that even the mistake of setting on fire all of this money, like we, we remember that fondly and we all laugh. We share in that, that moment for her, which is, was, really stressful i can imagine right but we've told it and we've knocked off those rough edges and so it's an expression of, of inclusion and so when i write code uh, or documentation or a bug i'm doing the same thing right uh, the, the effort that i'm putting in to make code clearer or more, or more simple maybe it doesn't run as fast maybe it takes two percent more compute cycles but it's still an expression of care for the next person of, of compassion and, and tenderness and welcomingness. And it, it's an invitation to learn something, to look at my code and make it better, to participate in it. I want it to be at that level. I want the story of what I do to be inclusive and expansive. I love that. My family is also story repeaters, chronic story repeaters. It's like a thing. And I think you've hit like why if a story was just to learn the facts of the story, you would only ever have to hear it once. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that you want to hear the story more than once, or you like, you see a movie more than once, or you read a book more than once. It's because like, there's more to it than just like a list of facts that you learned and are in your brain. Now, my family is actually such bad chronic story repeaters that we threatened at one point to like number all of our stories. So we could just be like, Oh, story number 67. Oh, haha. Everyone laughs. We don't have to tell it, which obviously we didn't do because that right. defeats the purpose. Mm -hmm. But I remember once I was like, I was dating someone new and he told me a story that he had already told me. 
And I was so happy. I was like, he just repeated a story to me. He's going to fit in so good in our family. <laughs> <laughs> the stories change over time, too. With, with each repeated telling, you, you, distill, you distill closer to, you make it more entertaining, yes. But you also distill <laughs> closer to, like, what is the truth that I'm sharing here? You know, that's why I love hearing stories evolve and change over time as they get retold between partners. It's really good. I was, I was, dating, I was dating somebody, I repeated a story. Right, I told a story about something that that they and I had done, and they were, they turned me like, "That's not how that happened. That's not true." And I'm like, "No, but it is. Like you think about it. Like, well, no, there's truth here." I love hearing the same story told by two different people. Yes, the best. So, what are the most important parts of a story, especially as it relates to code, like? When you're writing code and you're crafting a story around that, what would you want the next person to take away from it? Like, what are the elements that make it a powerful story? In actual storytelling, like storytelling is a skill and it's an art that, that can be taught. And people do teach it. There's storytelling workshops and things like that. And I've, I've attended a few of these. And one of the consistent pieces of advice in storytelling is you should know what your last line is going to be. And I think that that pertains a bit to code as well. We have this, um, a lot of product development processes talk about writing the press release for your feature or your product, writing the press release first, right? Like how would you announce the thing that you want to build? What, like, how do you tell that story? And that can become part of that, the theme of development for building features and, and the attitude that you take towards delivering that in a similar, but not Maybe it's a little, little tangential, but I recently um, remembered uh, Sandy Metz's great talk on testing from a few years ago, uh, where she talks about testing interfaces, inputs and outputs only. You don't test the implementation, what happens inside of the code. You test what comes in and what goes out. And similarly, like that's the way that I want code to be. I want people to be able to like see where something starts. And they can trace it down if they need to, but it can get a little, little fuzzy. But I'm going to try and hide that as much as possible. And focus on the output and like where that's, where the, where's this going? Like what's the ultimate goal? Um, cause so often in code, especially, um, uh, it, it's really easy to have like multiple branching paths through your code and we're, we're using exceptions to do control flow and like what happens if this HTTP call breaks and like it triggers this whole other thing. You never kind of get back to like the original, like what the heck was I even doing? Um, and I find this with code that does a lot of, a lot of redirection and a lot of uh, delegation, right? Where I can't understand, like I'm, I'm, I'm six models deep and I have no idea, like who's talking to what. Um, so I've done a lot of work around uh, entity relationship diagrams and UML graphing to try to get my own brain around, um, very complex legacy systems to understand the flow. If I don't understand the story of how something moves through the system, I need, I need to be able to get my hands on it somehow. So when I write code, I really want to focus on making it approachable from that beginning point where people can see at a top level, what is the through line in this code? Where does it start and where does it end? Like what is, where does it come back out? Cause all code is some sort of like transformation. We take a piece of data, we transform it or we react, we react to it or we transform it somehow and we respond backwards at the end. It's kind of a classic three act structure, right? Like we have. We have an introduction. We have a rising act. What was the five act structure in Shakespeare, right? We have the, uh, the introduction of all, all of our players. Uh, all the characters get introduced and we have rising action and we have conflict and denouement and conclusion. It's kind of a bell curve of, of what happens and it's a structured plot. The Greeks have a three act structure. It's very similar with, uh, some, some constraints around how Greek theater structures itself with the, the consistencies of time, place and action. Well, I mean, Greek theater does have this idea, right? Of like, you have to be consistent in time 
uh, in place and character. Uh, time, right? The time that the, the show is happening is the time that is happening in the story. So if, if your play is an hour long, you're only able to show an hour's worth of time. Greeks had no, no concept of like, you know, jumping around in time or playing with condensing or contracting. You have a unity of place. Uh, all of the action happens in the same place. You have unity of character. So characters, uh, this actor is, uh, Achilles and will always be Achilles for the, the, the sum total of the play. And so these, these three unities of Greek theater then uh, sort of unite that story and make it consistent. And it's the easy structure for people to understand what they're seeing. Um, and I think code has some of that as well, right? Like if I'm going to talk to an object, I want this object to always be this object. I never want it to be, if it's a user object, it's a record that's been hydrated into my system as a user. Does it also need to do calendaring, right? Like we talk about that as a re- separation of responsibilities, right? The single responsibility principle. Right. Uh, a concept should have one responsibility or one job or one role within the system. And it's the same thing in storytelling, right? Like the thing that I'm telling you about that is sort of a metaphor or an illusion to something, it should retain that and it should never get mixed with other, other concepts. I feel like now's a good time to mention a presentation that I saw at Cascadia Ruby, uh, some years ago by Avdi Grimm. It's called Confident Code and, uh, was really educational and transformational for me in that he took, you know, the various, you know, he, he identifies four major responsibilities of a method. You know, it's like gathering information and then it's doing something and then maybe it's acting on the result and, and finally, it's handling, handling errors. I don't know if I got those four right, but I think that's what it was. But he talks about that in the context of a narrative structure. And he, he illustrates this by, as part of his script, he tries to tell this story, but he's like, he's telling it in a very, uh, hesitant way and going back and saying, Oh, but before I can tell you that, I have, you have to understand this other thing. And he's illustrating what it's like when you tell a story with elements in the wrong order and how frustrating and confusing it is for the user. I really liked what you were saying earlier too, Carrie, about how getting that stuff right and in the right order is an act of care for the future reader. I mean, there's, there's self-interest, right? Like I want to be entertaining. I want to communicate something. I want you to, I want to meet my goals, but it's also, I want to give you something. I want to give you this gift. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to apply this stuff in Avdi's talk if you don't give a shit about, you know, whoever's going to maintain your code later. It's wasted effort if you don't care. (laughs) You have such an interesting background, and I would love to hear about it more. But one thing I want to know is, what is a lackwit gad about? (laughs) (laughs) It's a domain name that I own. Really? (laughs) Yes, I own lackwit. That's pretty cool. I love that. That's really cool. Uh, no, years ago, a friend of mine used, uh, used that phrase in a comic that she wrote. And I was like, Oh, I love it. That describes me so well. Uh, a lackwit, uh, it's kind of a vaguely Shakespearean term. Uh, it, it just means a fool or somebody who, someone who knows nothing and is happy about it, right? They, they lack wit to understand their life situation. And a gadabout is kind of a dilettante, somebody who tries lots of things, who's a little bit carefree and happy and lives kind of an uncomplicated life or lives only for uh, pleasure and experience. The grasshopper in the ant and the grasshopper. Yeah, exactly. I, I think of it as a, a space between gad and about, right? So you, you gad about the, the field, right? It's like <laughs> you go around the field, <laughs> just gadding around. On your uh, motorcycle. Exactly, exactly. Like little circles, I ride around. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> That's kind of what I aspire to in a lot of ways, right? Like I, I, I wouldn't say like I venerate the unexamined life. I very firmly believe in that in the Socratic ideals, right? Of the unexamined life is, is not worth living. I want to blend that with the um 
gosh, I forget the name of the, the philosophic school, but the Emersonian and Thoreau um, idea of your best life is, is lived, right? And that you, you, you experience the world around you and you approach it in a, in a, a way that is constantly amazed at the wonder of what we're able to do um, as humans, what we're able to comprehend and the magic and the majesty of the larger epic landscape upon which we live. We all have a story of our lives that we tell ourselves and we tell other people and we can change that story. We're all looking for a story that is worth living. And I feel like I find that when I approach the world with wonder and care and amazement and compassion. And in a roundabout way, that's kind of where I get to with, with being a, the Lackwit gadabout is uh, to be in that place and to, to find wonder and amazement at the world around me and to accept it as it is. Can I be a Lackwit gadabout too? <laughs> of course. Okay. Thank you. I won't be the original, but you, you know. You want Christina at or? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I love it. I also want to be a Lackwit gadabout. And I really like it because it reminds me of, um, I do a lot of tarot and, uh, the fool is the first card in the tarot deck. And that was what I was thinking of when you described this, because like the fool, he's called the fool, which like sounds bad, but actually like it's all about starting new journeys and about wonder. And if you look at like the traditional art on the fool card, he's kind of like, wearing colorful clothes and like prancing about near the cliff and he's got a little dog with him. And I always thought like, what a great life to live. And he's card number zero. Like it's before the numbers even start, which I really like. And so that's what I was thinking about when you talked about the lack we get about. Exactly. I mean, every, (laughs) every classic fool character, right. Is the truth sayer and the one who really knows what's going on. Absolutely. King Lear is the classic where like the fool scolds Lear, like, what are you doing? You picked the wrong daughters. You exiled the one daughter who loved you. What are you, what is going on here? Uh, that's a, it's a wonderful place to be in that, that carefree dancing zone where we can speak truth and uh, be compassionate and, and loving and, and just enjoy life. I totally agree. So this is the time of the show where we uh, think back to something that really caught our attention or that we want to try to carry forward into our lives or something that we want to uh, um, challenge our listeners to do or to try. And uh, I'll just go ahead and start. You said something really early on in the show, Carrie, that made me think about the distinction between behavior and identity. And that's really something that I noticed in my 20s was uh, that in our culture, when we ask, you know, when we meet somebody, we have this weird thing where the first thing we want to know is, what do you do? So we ask people, so what do you do for a living? Or sometimes we say for fun, but it's more often for a living because we're a very capitalist culture for some reason. And so we ask this question in the form of behavior. And what we get back is an answer that almost always starts with, so I am a. And this all, this has always struck me for 20 years as like being really, really weird. Um, and then you actually told another story a little bit later on, Carrie, about how you got to see uh, the 80s going through this experience of being I'm learning code to uh, I am a developer. And it hadn't occurred to me that that could also be sort of a positive aspect of that same bit of our culture. So that was really interesting. Thank you. I think today I learned or just relearned that storytelling is super important and that it's a skill that I am really looking forward to strengthening. So thanks, Carrie. Like I really loved everything that you said. 
Um, you taught me a lot of things. And also, I mean, you had like eight, 18 quotables. Like I was trying to type at the same time, but I was like, you know what? Let me not spoil it. Let me just like listen intently. But I really love the line about know what your line is going to be. Your last line is going to be. So I, I love that. So I'm going to actually wrote that down on a post-it note. So thank you. One of the things I really love about Greater Than Code in general is I feel like almost like week to week, we're having this conversation that just continues. And so I want to kind of tie some of the stuff we said this week back into something that I was still thinking about from last week's show, which was Jess had said, you have to care about something before you learn it. Now you, that you have to, but it's helpful to care about something before you learn it. I was thinking about that when Carrie was telling the story about trig and it really hit home for me again, like how difficult it is to be like, I'm going to learn this because I have to, or because I decided that I should care about it and I'm going to read this book or as Sam mentioned, maybe I'm not going to read this book and then I'm going to give it away. <laughs> and so I really am continuing to work with this idea about figuring out what you care about and why, and then throwing yourself into this learning process, which I do feel is the opposite of what we often try to do. You feel like by the time that you care about something, you want to be an expert, and that's just not how it works. Everything all three of you have said as reflections, like I could talk for another half hour with each one of those things, which is, uh, I think uh, for, for me, that's like, I, I, let's go out and get pie. Let's go out and have pie right now and like talk about this over coffee and pie. Is that okay? Can we do that? Sounds awesome. Sounds great. Next time I'm in uh, Seattle, I'm going to call you for pie. Please do. Please do. I'll that is open. Pie. Anyone who wants to have like pie and coffee with me and talk about anything, like I'm, I'm down for that. I, I would like to take the tact or the option of challenging people to do something. It's a very small something uh, that you, you're, you can do every single day that you're writing code that will change your approach to telling stories. And that is next time you do a git commit, git add dot, git commit dash m, and then your, your little thing, don't do dash m, just do git commit. And what will happen for most people is a text editor will pop up, usually Vim or Emacs or something, and you will be able to write extended commit notes about that commit. And the practice of doing that is something I picked up while working with um, some other people when I was at GitHub. But doing that for, for most every commit makes me tell the story of why I made this change. It attaches, was there an issue? Was there a pull request or, or like a bug report? But also like, what was I thinking? How was I feeling about the change that I just made? Like, why, why are we doing this? Why are we changing this value from eight to nine? Instead of just using 60 characters to do it, I can write as much as I want to or feel that I need to, to provide the context. And GitHub does a really cool thing. When you do your issue, when you make a, a pull request, it'll look for that and it will paste that in the first one that it finds, the extended commit notes, as the body of the PR. So you already, you're getting a head start on writing your pull request where you explain the, the entirety of, of the context of your changes. And even if you don't end up using that one, you can go through and look at each individual commit in your pull request and you've got notes on why you made each change and you can look for the through line of how, how am I talking about these changes? What is the story that wraps them all together? So challenge you to, to try that, um, to try using that feature of Git uh, for a few days and see how it expands your, your skill set and your approach to, to talking about the code. 
I've been doing exactly that on a new project that I'm working on this past week or two. And like just yesterday, we fixed a bunch of bugs and I sometimes I cheated by just pasting in exception reports, you know, links to the sentry page of, of the error that I got. But in a lot of cases, it was like, and we did this because so that when I come back later and I look at this line of code, I'm like, what the hell? It helps me. <laughs> I one time had to draw a flow chart to explain what I was doing to one of my coworkers. He was like, why did you write this code? And I'm like, I'm sorry, it's so complicated. Let me draw you a flowchart. And I drew him like a hand-drawn crappy flowchart and I sent it to him on Slack. And he was like, oh, I get it now. And I was like, great, that's that. And then when I went and looked at like the commit, he had uploaded my hand-drawn chart and like put it in the comments for the code. And I was like, okay, that might've looked nicer if I had known that everyone was going to look at it for the rest of their lives, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) But it was helpful. Uh, years ago, I worked at this one code base where there was, uh, we call it the, the KT boundary commit. Uh, the KT boundary, if you don't know, uh, is, uh, in geological terms, is this very thin band of soil that exists all over the planet. Uh, it happens about 68, 70 million years ago. It is the layer that, uh, when the, the big meteoroid hit and killed all the dinosaurs, that's what that soil is from. Right. And so it's got like certain properties and like we can detect it. And it, you know, so it's the KT boundary below this boundary. The world was like this, and after it, it's like this. And I've worked on so many, so many code bases where there is a KT boundary commit that changes the entire world. Like we change the structure, or we're changing from Sinatra to Rails, or whatever it is. And uh, I worked in this one place where there was we called it the the, the we called it the Ernie commit, and it was this one commit that it caught on every single file. It touched every single file, and it did a whole bunch of changes that, like, if you looked at any individual file, you could never really understand what it was doing. But it had this really long, like three paragraph, like this is why I'm making this massive commit to change the structure of every single file in this 3000 file code base. And it was amazing. And I loved it. As if I remember correctly, the first line of that commit message was epic white space commit of epicness. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, you worked on that as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was Ernie Miller for our listeners at home. <laughs> Well, this has been a really great show, and it was really awesome to have our friend Carrie on. And I wish that we could talk forever. Saying it like that sounds like carry on, like we're traveling, which is a theme. Um, Maybe we should rename the podcast to My Wayward Son so we could have carry on our wayward son. <laughs> oh, darn, oh, we don't do so jump good. titles anymore. <laughs> oh, so good. Anyway, it was a really great episode, and um, we really appreciate you coming on. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to like talk to you all, and Christine, it was great to meet you as well. Thank I don't believe we met before, so we great. have not. Oh, I'm glad we remedied that. Me too. And yes, anytime you're in, you're in Seattle or happen to correspond where I am as I'm doing this this epic four month trip around North America, pie and coffee. We'll make it happen. We'll do. Yes, I'm game. Thank you, and thanks everyone for listening. 